Welcome to Women Transcend. I'm Jennifer Todd, and this is a podcast that explores issues that affect women and girls worldwide. Each episode, we dive into a topic of national or international significance and discuss the particular impact on women and girls and how they are able to overcome or transcend. Starting on the campaign trail, Donald Trump made clear his position on environmental protection. He promised to get rid of the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, quote, in almost every form. Once elected, he held those promises. The man he chose to head the EPA, Scott Pruitt, the former attorney general of the state of Oklahoma, had sued that agency more than a dozen times in recent years, challenging the EPA's authority to regulate carbon emissions, mercury pollution, and power plants, among other things. He certainly is not a friend to the agency he now oversees. Trump's proposed budget reflects these past sentiments. As proposed, the EPA's staff would be slashed from its current level of 15000 to 12000 and the budget cut by about 31%. Grants to states as well as its air and water programs would be cut by 30%. The massive Chesapeake Bay cleanup project would virtually be eliminated in the next fiscal year. The budget proposes the discontinuation of federal funding for the cleanup of abandoned industrial sites, the Clean Power Plan, climate change research, and international climate change programs, period. Altogether, it calls for the elimination of more than 50 programs within the EPA. The president's budget is not so brutal to all aspects of the government functions. It proposes an increase to defense spending which, quote, exceeds the entire defense budget of most countries and would be one of the largest one-year DOD increases in American history, according to the budget document itself. In researching the early days of the EPA for this episode, I had difficulty finding government documents. The Trump administration has scrubbed the EPA of much of its content. What is left of that website is a list of dead links to once available resources. So what I was able to find was some very interesting background. Richard Nixon actually started the EPA back in 1970. It grew out of a conflagration of issues, such as the publishing of the book A Silent Spring, which documented poisoning of the environment with pesticides, rise in what was termed smog in growing cities, and the moon landing, believe it or not. When astronauts landed on the moon and sent back to the Earth pictures of the beautiful, blue, peaceful, and fragile planet, the responsibility for caring for our celestial home became apparent.
Coming up next, my interview with Melanie Moore. Melanie is the Midwest Field Director for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. In her role, Melanie leads the Union of Concerned Scientists office in Chicago in developing and executing campaign strategies and projects to advance the organization's clean energy and climate goals. Melanie earned a bachelor's in marine and environmental science from Hampton University and a master's in environmental science and public policy from the University of Chicago. Welcome to Women Transcend, Melanie. It's great to have you join us. I'm really, really excited about this important conversation at kind of a keystone time in history. So I'm going to just dive right in. Yes, great, great. Yeah, so I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on what it means to be a woman in science today. Well, my career path towards science was established very early on. I've always been inquisitive. And so it's just something that I inherently knew that I wanted to do. You know, I know other kids wanted to be doctors and lawyers, but I always knew I wanted to be in the sciences and I excelled in science. I knew I could guarantee that I would always get an A in one of my science classes. So that was just my Uh (laughs) go-to. And so that's where I, I felt the most comfortable. And so as I progressed in my career, I didn't think it was strange to see women in science. Um, my first job outside of babysitting was for a professor at the University of Chicago, Dr. Jean Altman. She did animal behavior research and so um, on baboons in Amboseli National Park in Kenya. And so uh, she was in a leadership position. She ran the lab and there were several graduate students in the lab. She wrote her grant proposals. Uh, she was married, she's married to Stuart Altman, her husband. And so they ran a uh, animal behavior powerhouse out of the University of Chicago um, looking at animal baboon behavior. And so, I mean, I knew, I guess it was an, different for women to be in the sciences. I think it became much more apparent when I attended conferences and the majority of the speaker and the conferences were, were white males. And so I always knew it was comfortable with seeing women and being in conferences and being, you know, in the sciences. And I just, from time to time, I see outstanding women presenting research, and I'll get so excited to say, yes, she's excellent. She's doing her job well. Yeah, so I guess uh, in looking at the stats and examining the, the statistics, that's when it became it stood out to me more, that yeah. you know, women are underrepresented in the sciences. And uh, apparently, I am somewhat of a... <laughs> A unicorn because two percent of African American women are in the sciences. So I didn't realize we were weren't represented, but I, I guess I didn't see that many women at the conference that I attended that were women of color. So that that I guess that is about right. I was surprised it was that low. I think we're noticing a change in academia. I feel like there's a lot more women. Like when I went to graduate school, there were a lot more women in the science classes is about 50-50, which is good because it's a representative yeah. sample. But, um, and I've talked to some more folks in academia, and they're say- saying that the girls are surging past the guys now. So I think there'll be a lag. And so right now yeah. we're seeing, you know, underrepresentation of women. But over time, I think uh, women will catch back up. 
Do you feel being a woman in a field that is generally dominated by by men and by white men, do you feel like you have to kind of get sharp elbows to get your voice heard? Or is that something that is part of how you react? You don't even notice it anymore? Yeah, I, I have sharp elbows. I was My mother developed that in me when I was early on about, I think she sounds about three or four when she started working on me because I was apparently very shy and didn't speak up. And so she worked on me and she says, I, I believe I created a monster. <laughs> and so, but I, I have had to encourage some of my colleagues and I've had to, um, undergrad, uh, our professors were very nurturing and um, all of them were white males and uh, they gave us great advice for coming through our careers. And, um, but I found myself definitely kind of encouraging my colleagues to, who didn't have that experience under their belt giving presentations in front of large groups of people. And so they get, they would get stage fright and they would doubt themselves. I'm like, come on, you know, you're great. I know you're great. Like my lab partner who did all our dissections, she was outstanding. I'm like, you got to get your confidence up because you're amazing. So just relay that to who you're trying to speak with. And uh-huh. so, you know, so I really found myself kind of encouraging others, other women to, uh, to to really showcase their skills. I feel like as women we we are comfortable being in the back seat yes. and you know playing supporting roles because uh-huh. of social norms. So I uh, I think I'm I guess rare like that. You know, I just didn't have that uh-huh. need to, to play second fiddle, but uh, there's definitely folks who aren't necessarily comfortable being in leadership positions and out as far as their research on what they're doing and um, yeah, and just representation in academia. Of course, you need to be tenure track, and it's just uh, political almost, you know, to get into that tenure track. And so uh, there are fewer women who reach that, you know, attain that status. And so definitely, um, uh, I think that is something that should be changed so that, or something that we can focus on helping women navigate that process so that they can be successful. And um, I mean, we're seeing it more. I know I'm, I'm a graduate of the University of Chicago and we had like dean of the college, the first dean of the woman, d- dean of the college was a woman. And so you're in the hall of all of the men since the university was established as all men. And then you look and there's a portrait of a woman there. And yeah. It just, you know, brings a little pride to you. So I think gradually we're making process. So. Yeah. And you highlight, I think, something that is critical is the role of educators in mentoring girls and women to become confident scientists. Do do you agree with that? I definitely agree with that. I think uh, uh, one thing that will definitely increase the number of women in STEM is that has been a movie, um, Hidden Figures. It's actually, yes. it's actually being turned into a curriculum now. And I think there's a lot of enthusiasm behind it. And so I definitely feel like mentorship and part of it is seeing yourself. I had no problem seeing myself as a scientist because I was reinforced from a young age. But there's so many girls who don't know this is a viable career path. And Uh so uh, they're definitely uh, seeing someone else do it and be successful at it. Um, I think it's very helpful. It's someone especially that looks like them, you know. Yeah. And so uh, I actually benefited from Katherine Johnson and the other women who were hidden figures because of that court case where the woman went to court, I don't know if you've seen the movie, uh-huh. um, is in Hampton Roads, which is where I went to undergraduate school. Okay. And so, and, so, um, and because of the success of that particular movie, 
NASA ended up giving our college a, a, a rocket launch program. I got my Mirage credit through one of those um, one of those classes, and so I definitely it's something that resonates with me. And so part of girls entering STEM and being successful is them seeing themselves succeeding in the sciences. Sure, yeah, no, I've heard a lot of similar comments from colleagues about how powerful that movie was to them and how it sort of gave them a voice that they didn't really know that they sort of needed. And and I'm not sure if that's the right way to say it. But um, okay, so I'd like to switch now to politics. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of a trying time for science. And it's a difficult time for the EPA because of the stance that our current administration has taken including a very significant budget cut. So what do you think is at stake if these budget cuts happen to the EPA? Well, there's a lot at stake, especially for our personal health, uh, public health in general. Um, There's several different parts of the EPA that are currently being threatened by the President uh, Trump's budget cuts. And so just to give perspective, when the EPA was established, there was a reason that the EPA was established. The Cuyahoga River had just caught on fire. There were all these accidents that were occurring. And so the EPA was started under the Nixon administration to focus on improving the health of individuals. And so that's what they do. They're a body that has enforcement where they can take polluters and penalize them for polluting. And then they also keep a track record of facilities and how the emissions are for facilities. And then that's how they control what goes on as far as releases of toxic substances. And so um, what's at stake right now is public health, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, and um, and also protections for communities of color, low-income communities, yeah. frontline communities live around those, those toxins. And so uh, President Trump's budget is basically going to cut 31% of the EPA and they're trying to eliminate about, about uh, 3,200 jobs. And of course, they're going after the enforcement arm of the EPA because uh, that's yeah. the one who penalizes the polluters. And yeah. those are the corporations. Those are the oil and gas industry jobs that appointees, they're definitely affiliated with the uh, oil and gas industry. And so, um, so they're trying to basically, the Environmental Protection Agency, they're trying to basically make sure that they're not able to do their job. Yeah, kind of take the teeth out of the ability of the agency to enforce the regulations that it has been charged with, essentially. Yeah, I mean, you're saying, why are they doing that? No, it, it seems like that's what they're doing is oh, yeah, that's their taking goal. away that's the, their you know, the firepower from the EPA right. and making it kind of a paper tiger. Yeah, they're trying to definitely take their jurisdiction away, especially in the enforcement arm of the EPA. Uh, The EPA handles a lot. I don't think the public realizes how much they handle. They go across broad areas. You know, the water, the air, the the Superfund sites. So the contaminated sites, they work on the cleanup and oversee the cleanup of that. They take companies to court. You know, if they're around, they charge them for the cleanups that go on. Can um, can I real quick just go back for for people who, I mean, this was not that long ago. You mentioned the genesis of EPA when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. And and that really was a wake up call. 
and exactly. ag- again, it was not that long ago that this happened, and that that I think became one of the first Superfund sites. Yes, yes. So people were so astonished that a river could catch fire, and they really it had difficulty so putting contaminated. it. Contaminated, exactly. Yeah, so many chemicals in there that that it was able to burn and Yes. Uh huh. So in general, the Clean Power Plan, specifically, mm-hmm. what can the American public do? As far as the Clean Power Plan, they can definitely talk to their legislators in the Congress and encourage them to not withdraw from the Paris Agreement. The, well, also, uh, EPA was the one overseeing greenhouse gas emissions, especially they were looking at the coal power plants and how, how many greenhouse gases they were emitting, which is attributed to climate change. And so the Clean Power Plan was EPA's way of accounting for that. And so with various different executive orders, they're trying to um, to eliminate the clean power plan and the implementation of the clean power plan. And so uh, what we saw when the clean power plan was first initiated, a lot of my colleagues did a lot of hard work on this. Uh, they looked at what our plan is to basically curb our carbon emissions cutting them um, in half by 2050. And so that plan goes through all the different steps of what is going to be done. And, and the states are taking the lead in that. And they were held accountable to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. And so the Clean Power Plan Executive Order basically holds the progress of that. There's still a case pending in um, in federal court, but this basically eroding the Clean Power Plan and basically making it non-functional. So what people can do is they can definitely call their legislators. And uh, what we're seeing now is that the states are taking the lead. And despite the erosion of the Clean Power Plan, states are still taking the initiative to curb their greenhouse gas emissions. And so you can also call your local, your state legislators and say, hey, we want to see more clean energy so that we can reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and be in compliance with the Paris Agreement. And you can call your uh, senators in the U.S., the U.S. Senate and um, encourage them to pass the word on to not withdraw from the Paris Agreement. And what people don't realize is that if we pull out of the Paris Agreement, when we export to other countries, our goods can be taxed. Uh, they can add tariffs, climate tariffs, to our products because we have pulled out of the Paris Agreement. It's just not a good place to be. And we'll also lose a lot of credibility with our allies and, um, and just other countries in general. Like China is definitely um, making a change for the better. The amount of solar they're installing is grown. Uh-huh. And so they're basically converting away from fossil fuels to clean energy industries. And because of it, the people who live there, the, you know, there's a lot of uh, air pollution in China because they're, you oh, know, yeah. a lot of the production uh-huh. is over there. And so they're seeing improvements in their air, their air quality because they're switching over to renewables. And so if we do that, we uh, lose credibility with other countries who are going the extra mile to reduce the greenhouse yeah. gas because we are the largest emitter of greenhouse gases and yet we're not if we show no accountability for what we're doing that it just sends the wrong message internationally yeah you know that has been lost the point that you just made which i think is really critical um several points that you made have been completely lost in discourse and media certainly not talking about it so if we withdraw from paris agreement there's economic ramifications in jobs, but in lots of other ways. Would you um, revisit that for a second? Well, I'm not the official expert who handles that. One of my colleagues, Rachel Cletus, is our person who's, uh, she also deals with the economics and climate 
economic impacts of climate. But I, um, but yeah, definitely, I know that there will be penalties as far as tariffs that could be uh, implemented, especially to Europe. Europe will definitely probably be imposing tariffs on our goods as they uh, as they enter countries that come from the U.S. And so that that will impact our bottom line. You know, because it seems like a lot of the issues that this administration seems to want to, you know, risk the health of, you know, you and I mm-hmm. yeah. or the benefits of other industries for this. And they, you know, oh, they're like, oh, jobs first, America first. But there are ways to have a triple bottom line where you see <laughs> where you have, I'll give an example of the renewable industry, you know, wind jobs and um, solar jobs are clean jobs. They're jobs nonetheless. Yes. So, but you don't have all of the negative impacts of greenhouse gases that come from the fossil fuel industry. And so they're a way to create jobs without sacrificing people's health. And uh-huh. so we definitely are you know, looking towards that. We also have our clean energy momentum um, scorecard, which is coming out very soon. And so uh, we're seeing progress. Like I was saying, despite the clean power plant that's being eroded, um, there are states that are taking the lead on making their um, meeting their obligation for the, the clean power plants. And so there's a lot of states doing well. California is doing well. Uh, in the Midwest, we see Iowa um, taking the lead. And so there's definitely lots of momentum with clean and renewables. And a lot of the progress that we're seeing is because corporations are necessarily dealing well with uncertainty of, okay, what's going on with coal? Is it going to be regulated? Is it not going to be regulated? And so they find that renewables work well for their the stability and their you know certainty in their organizations knowing where their energy is going to come from and then it's just cheaper a lot of corporations are having facilities that are run off of 100 percent renewables and and so we're seeing a lot of that um and the, despite what's going on on the national level that on the local and state level there's still something going on with renewable energy and we're excited about that yeah and I think that sometimes people feel that the the only place that they have to make their voice heard or their concerns heard is to go to the federal government and their, you know, congressmen, their senators. But as you said, there's a lot of work being done at the state level. And so yeah. don't forget that you have state representatives that are even closer to you in lots of different ways. Um, and they're accountable to you to be sure that you have safe water and clean air as well. Um, and if the federal government isn't isn't going to provide that, then you lean on your your state representatives to make sure it happens at the state level. Do you agree with that? Yeah, there are some opportunities at a state level, actually more opportunities to have influence. Some of the programs that federal funding for specific programs is being threatened. And so the local, the state legislators uh, have ways of um, ensuring that some of these local programs are protected. And so definitely going with the state representative or legislators definitely is something that I can say you have an impact. And you're not so far removed that that person doesn't have to go as far. They're just going to your state capital, which is not as far as going to Washington, D.C. So I definitely feel like there are opportunities to join the movement for a better planet in general. Because right now we don't have a a plan B. I'm a big fan of NASA. But right now (laughs) we don't have a plan B planet. This is our planet. And we can't destroy our planet for the benefit of a few people. Uh Exactly. And it's bizarre to me. That even, you know, in 2017, 
um, that we're having a discussion about how do we make sure that we have clean water to drink and safe air to breathe. But nevertheless, we're in that spot. So can I ask you, in your opinion, why do you as a scientist believe that at this moment in our history, we are at a point where people are questioning the validity of science? I think it's really has somewhat to do with like, we're doing our job too well where people are getting comfortable with science and all the benefits of science. And so we've progressed from a a point where people were dying from different diseases. And so now it's like, oh, well, we don't have to deal with this particular, (laughs) this particular disease has been eliminated. And so now we're seeing folks who aren't getting vaccinated. And so it's like certain diseases are popping back up because people don't have the experience of living with the threat of that particular disease and knowing that how devastating it is. Uh-huh. So I think that's part of it. And then part of it is just the evolution of alternative facts. Folks just are making it up as they go and where, you know, science, there's a process to it. Your publications are peer reviewed. It's something you can depend on, you know, with 95% confidence, I'm stating that X, Y, and Z is true. And it's, it evolves over time and it improves over time. And we see those improvements. But I think we're living in a day now where we're just so comfortable with some of the earlier problems that we encountered in the struggles that it's almost like we're regressing because we haven't had the threat of large-scale devastation as far as, you know, diseases. Yeah. You know, one of my heroes is Wilma Rudolph. Uh, she's an Olympian who ran in the Olympics. Uh-huh. But when she was born, she had polio. And so her mother worked on her and massaged her legs. And she went from walking with braces to running, but to running in a race and winning an Olympic medal. And so when I grew up, you know, in classroom, none of the kids had polio because it had been eradicated, right? And so I think because we don't have in our memory what it's like, people are very comfortable self-ordaining themselves as experts and just going with what they feel or think, but not necessarily valuing the scientific process. But the scientific method has been proven and it's, it's the way it is because it's over time, it improves. And so, yeah, I'm not happy about what's going on with Yeah, that. I feel like people know the value of science. And so I think with social media, people will get their own platform. So I think people who normally would not have a platform have platforms. Yeah. And I think that's good uh, on a grassroots level for folks to express how they feel, but to to challenge proven science. Yeah. Is, bit much and to the credibility of science to stand on its own. Yeah, so it, we're yeah. going to continue to defend science because we know the benefits of science. Meanwhile, people are carrying cell phones and all the technologies that scientists have developed, right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> so you, they want to erode our authority, but meanwhile, they're taking all the benefits, but they're not looking at, you know, the other side. Of the yeah, point, so. that's an excellent point. And unfortunately, we have a person in the White House who either is sympathetic to these science non-believers or questioners or... Yeah, climate denial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's very dangerous because we have to really move quickly to mitigate the impacts of climate change. So it's very dangerous. They're on like one-legged stool at this point because 
the there's an overwhelming evidence of you know the impacts of climate change you know we're seeing larger scale climate events we're seeing inland flooding we're seeing you know hotter summers more heat waves more frequent heat waves and so people can be in denial and they can be an ostrich and put their face in the sand if they want to but i think the majority of the, the public gets it they understand it and we're seeing people who normally were in the neutral category coming to the side of, okay, I, I think climate change is real and I agree with you. And so, yeah, I mean, folks can try and be in denial, but it's almost like someone saying, hey, uh, cigarettes aren't bad for you, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you look at that person right now. So, oh, cigarettes aren't bad for you. Like, you're pretty crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I think we're calling climate deniers to the carpet, but, um, I think the tide is changing in that. And literally the tide is changing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think there's overwhelming evidence and the climate deniers are becoming fewer and fewer. And um, so, But we still have to act because it's there are vulnerable communities that you know will be impacted by this. And um, legislators can do nothing, but eventually you know, they have to be reelected and the voters, it's in their best interest Ex- to protect yeah. their residents, you know. So uh, sort of along those lines, can I ask, do you think that there is a disproportionate impact of climate change on women globally? No, I'll see the flood. Yeah. So I was thinking about that. Um, And so in low lying areas, I know like Bangladesh and countries like that, there are low lying areas. There's lots of flooding. I know um, women are responsible for in some countries, women are responsible for collecting water and doing uh, those type of activities. And so um, I feel like in areas where there'll be more droughts, women will be impacted because they'll have to go further to get water and work harder to get water. And uh, especially like in some villages, there are girls that go and the wells are further away and they're, you know, and it's hotter. So I definitely feel like there will probably be health impacts as far as the distance that they have to go to get the same amount of water. As far as flooding, flooding just kind of takes out everybody. I don't think there's like a gender distribution with that, but it just, water just goes where it wants to go. But I know where vulnerable communities are established, they're usually established in low-lying areas. So poor people will definitely be disproportionately impacted by climate change and uh, inundation from uh, the seas. So there's definitely a correlation with poor people. And so I think in some countries, uh, women tend to be poorer. So that from that standpoint, there will be an impact. Uh huh. And I was also thinking that women just as the caretaker of the the larger family might be impacted, you know, if there are higher rates of asthma or... Oh, definitely. So I was doing analysis for the state of Ohio, um, looking at the, they're trying to erode the Environmental Protection Agency, and I was looking up stats, and so there's something called uh, particulate matter that gets in your lungs, and the more particulate matter that's in the air, the more likely you are to die from like an asthma attack and different different particulate matters uh, a- aggravate your asthma. And so that there was analysis done that said that there were oh, there were legislations that passed that prevented like over a thousand deaths, de- a thousand premature deaths from this particulate matter. And so there's definitely when you're when you were talking about the air, 
there's definitely going to be people, more people dying. There's going to be more cases of asthma, more people dying from asthma. Um, not just asthma. There's several different respiratory illnesses that come about from particulate matter. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that once that particulate matter is in your lungs, it's in there. Yeah, yeah. All right. So what do you think we can do as professionals, parents, educators, mentors, whatever role we have, to encourage more women and girls to consider a career path in science? Um, Definitely mentorship exposure. Um, Take your daughter to work day. or um, For me, I would take my niece. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, definitely exposure to different careers to see women in different non-traditional careers. And then also mentoring them along their way, whether it's early career, mid-career, late career, mentorship. And then um, also getting funding. So a lot of times it's expensive. Schooling is expensive. You can't just wake up and say, I want to be a scientist. You're going to have to study hard and do a lot of work and offering that support is important. Um, I know one school in um, UIC, I believe is a school, they have a girls only floor and for the girls in the sciences. And they found that when they have a girls only floor, the girls study with one another and they are support systems for one another and they're all in the sciences. So they're taking some of the coursework and so their study groups are right there and they found that their retention rate of female students and their grades are better as well. Interesting. Programs like that where you're you're trying different programs out and trying something new to um, increase the success rates, I think, um, Starting innovative programs like that to support women throughout their careers is definitely something that I would encourage. That's great. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I'm just pleased to be here and to have this platform to speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. Really so honored that you would take the time to talk with us. I could not agree more that this is such a critical issue and we are at the fulcrum of a crisis, I feel, depending on decisions made by our elected officials right now. And it's, we're talking about the planet. And like you said, we don't have a planet B. So we have to make our home here and walk gently on the earth. Yeah. Oh, there's, um, there, there was one, a few more things I wanted to make sure. points about um, threats to science, like uh, especially for research. You said, what, what can people do? You can also contact your own legislators uh, especially your, your Congress people. Um, so there's a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Their budget is being threatened. They're trying to erode that budget. And so NOAA runs the satellites that a lot of the meteorology and weather channel uses. And so there's also NASA as well. And so the funding for those particular programs is being threatened. And the thing is, if you cut NOAA, we're definitely going to be at a disadvantage as far as being competitive with um, in our research. And so it's just really important that we protect funding for climate science and NASA. So the researchers and then just the everyday monitoring. When a hurricane hits during hurricane season, those are NOAA satellites. <laughs> like, you know, so if you want to defund NOAA, how are we going to know just the regular weather? Like, exactly. Just... And I think it's NOAA planes that go into the storms. Yeah. 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 So that's just a basic safety issue. And then beyond there, there's FEMA. So there's something called pre-disaster mitigation flooding. 
and there's a funding for that. So basically it's preparation before disasters occur. And so this really important as far as resilience and just having a plan ahead of time. Uh, because we're going to see more frequent natural disasters, we have to definitely protect the funding for FEMA. And then an ounce of prevention is a saying, you know, so if you focus on pre-disaster mitigation, you know, installing, um, you know, wetlands to kind of absorb some of the storm surge and that type of work, that we definitely want to encourage protection of FEMA. And that's the thing. I don't think people realize that you can cut funding, right, on the front end, but you're going to pay for it in the long run, long run with the natural disasters on the back end. So it's easier to fund it up front so that you'll pay less later on. And and, and save lives. Yeah. So there's no need to discount science. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, the work that we do is very high quality. We're, we're professionals. And uh-huh. so there's no need to discount what we're saying because we have a pretty good track record of yeah. know, the work that we do. Yeah. And like 500 years of at least of experience fine-tuning what we're doing to get us where we are right now to start going backwards is really discouraging. Definitely. Uh, well, there's good news in that. And one other thing, um, as far as the Department of Energy, they do a lot of uh, research and development. And so, uh, of course, that funding too is being threatened. And so some of the the ways that we can really make advances with renewable energy, the renewable energy sector. Uh, a lot of those advances are coming out of the Department of Energy, like pilot projects and projects in general. And so the one way that we'll be able to catch up um, or we more likely to deploy more renewables is through innovations and in technology. If we don't put money into researching those technologies, then we won't have it, you know, later on. And then someone else will discover it and then we'll have to pay them money. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to research and development internally and uh, getting the benefit from that. Yeah. And it felt like we were on a really strong trajectory in terms of renewables before this administration. And I'm, I'm hoping that not too much progress is lost. Yeah, we, 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 we are still making progress. One silver lining is that as a director, Rick Perry is doing some good things at the Department of Energy. So I'm optimistic that we'll see some, uh, the Department of Energy will not be dismantled because folks are realizing that there are programs that make money there. <laughs> that yeah. they don't, you know, it doesn't make sense to cut profitable programs when we're making money off of our investments in renewables. So, yeah, I mean, there've been a lot of, issues around the EPA and around, you know, Scott Pruitt's leadership. And so we just want to, um, I just came back from East Chicago, Indiana, where they're having issues with their soil. And oh, their yeah. Water. Uh-huh. And so we just want to uh, make sure that uh, there's even bills to erode the regulatory process. And so we just want to make sure that we're pressuring our legislators to not go for with you know, dismantling the regulatory process and that it's that our policies are informed by science, real science and not just alternative facts. And so we just want to make sure that we uphold policies that are informed by science. We don't want to put science in the back seat and, you know, on the back burner. Sure. Well, great. This has been a very important discussion. I think that that we can't overplay what a critical time this is historically. And 
as you mentioned, there are so many programs that are in peril, their budgets or their existence. And it's a time for citizens to get educated about Mm -hmm. what these agencies do, because you're going to know real fast what they do when they're gone. So the time to take action to save the budgets or to save the agency or to save the agreements like the Paris Agreement, the time is now, not after it is gone. I agree with that. By the time this airs, it'll probably be after the People's Climate March, but we uh, it's also the called the People's Climate Movement because we'll still be um, taking actions after the People's Climate March. So if folks want to learn more about the People's Climate Movement, they can go to our website. So it's the Union of Concerned Scientists website. It's www.ucsusa.org. And we have a group of folks who are called our watchdogs. And you can sign up to be a watchdog for your state. And you'll get information on what's going on with the Trump administration when they're trying to take actions and rapid response to an executive order where you can be get updates on what's going on. And if you want to take action, you you can um, take further action and call your legislator and talk about a specific issue. And so if people are interested in that, they can sign up uh, to be watchdogs within our science network. That's great. That's a great way for people to get involved and also to feel empowered in a time when it can feel like you're disempowered. So that's a, that's a great uh, way for people to get involved. Yeah, so we're seeing momentum. Only this going to be the March for Science, and then the People's Climate March. And um, I think folks are going to be impressed with the number of people that come out because climate justice is a humongous issue. It's not just scientists out there. There's folks from a broad scope of areas. And so, um, if we band together and demand climate action, we're going to get it. Yeah, agreed. Yes. Well, Melanie, I so thank you for your time and your expertise, and I thank you for your important work. As you said, it's time to get involved. So if you're interested, www.ucsusa.org to sign up if you are interested in the climate movement or you want to be a watchdog or to stay involved in late-breaking news around these critical issues. So I thank you so much for joining Women Transcend and for adding to this important discussion. Wonderful. This episode's Woman in the Spotlight is Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson was an American marine biologist, author, and conservationist whose book Silent Spring and other writings are credited with advancing the global environmental movement. Carson began her career as an aquatic biologist and became a full-time nature writer in the 1950s. She wrote several widely praised bestsellers exploring ocean life from the shores to the depths. Later, Carson turned her attention to synthetic pesticides. The result was the book Silent Spring, which brought environmental concerns to an unprecedented number of American people. 
Although Silent Spring was met with fierce opposition by chemical companies, it spurred a reversal in national pesticide policy, which led to a nationwide ban on DDT and other pesticides. It also inspired a grassroots environmental movement that led to the creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Carson was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Jimmy Carter. She died in 1964. For having the courage to stand up to chemical companies and rid our environment of some of its most dangerous pesticides, I thank Rachel Carson for her courageous work. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. You can do us a big favor and tell at least one other person about our podcast and how to find us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you can be sure you won't miss a single episode. It will automatically show up in your podcast player. If you like a particular episode, it's easy to share directly through Twitter or Facebook. A big thanks to Melanie Moore for speaking with me for today's episode and to John Philbeck for doing all of the fabulous sound artistry so that we sound so good. Tweet us at Women Transcend or follow us on Facebook. We always enjoy hearing from you. That's all for this episode. 